0: See a lot of new faces since the last time I was up here. So if you don't know me, my name is David. I hold the office of member here, Um, and our pastors let me preach sometimes. I'm sorry we haven't met formally, but I pray this first impression leaves you more in love with God than when you arrived this morning. Um, And so, as to deter any distraction, when you look at my sling, I had shoulder surgery, long-time sports injuries, so you're just not distracted during the sermon. (laughs) Mystery solved. (laughs) Um, Let us go to the Father now in prayer. He may bless this sermon for his glory and our good. Dear Heavenly Father, your words are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb by them is your servant warned and in keeping them there is great reward we are sure of this so we ask you now to speak because we're certain that when you speak the spiritually dead are raised and the saints are sanctified and for this to happen we need your grace if you do not act upon us, we'll leave this place the same or worse off. Yet we are confident your word never returns void. So help me preach your word and us hear your word, confident that you intend to work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we know who's a Christian? a true Christian, someone who God actually lives in? Should we just take people's word for it? Oh, you identify as a Christian? Then I'll see you in heaven. Certainly not if we cared all about the name of Jesus being drugged through the mud. Because when fake Christians... Are affirmed as real Christians, the world sees those fake Christians acting a fool and mocks Jesus. But not only that, real Christians see those fake Christians acting a fool and get confused about what a Christian is and how a Christian lives. That's why the letter of 1 John was written. False prophets had risen to power in the early church. They end up leaving the church, but continuing to spread lies in the neighborhood. And lies confuse people. So John, like a good father, writes to help his spiritual children discern truth from error. Not to start a witch hunt, sniffing out the fake Christians. No, John wants his children confident, that they themselves are saved, as they're surrounded by false prophets who are shaking that confidence. Two thousand years later, we need no less help than John's readers as our world drowns in bad examples of Christianity. How do we know who's a true Christian? Can we know? If you're not already there, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 4. If you're new to church or the Bible, the big numbers in the Bible stand for chapters and the small numbers stand for verses. So we'll be reading 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 all the way to chapter 5 verse 4a. Yes. Pastor Andy gave me a passage that ends in the middle of a verse, just to confuse us all when I stop reading it halfway. (laughs) Read with me now, starting in 1 John 4, 7. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. How do we know who's a true Christian? How do you know if you're a true Christian? I'm going to argue in this sermon that the proof God's in you is that his love's in you. God's love in someone is proof God himself is in them. The challenge is that's hard to prove. If the proof God's in you is that his love's in you, how do we discern his love from any love? Because everybody loves somebody, which love should we see as a flashing neon sign that reads... God's love. In the face of such a challenge, you may be wondering, are you sure love makes for a good authenticity test? I am, only because I stole this test directly from John in verses 7 to 8. They read, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Are you all ready to put your theologian thinking caps on this morning? God is love. God's relationship to his love is not the same as me to my beard. You can shave off my beard, and I'd still be David. My beard is not essential to my identity. You cannot, however, shave off God's love, and him still be the same God, because it's who he is. God is love, meaning he's all love. There's nothing unloving in him, which makes him quite trustworthy, given that all God does is love. He's incapable of doing an unloving deed. This is why God's love in you is the proof God's in you, why it's a good test. He's love's very source. And see in verse 7, why John brings up the source of love. How's he using it in his argument? He's saying our reason to love one another is because love is from God. How is that motivating? Think about it. We all care about where things come from. Has anyone ever tried to talk you out of eating hot dogs by saying, you know where those come from, right? Some restaurants name the exact farm they get their ingredients from because source matters. People pay more money for food, coffee, clothing, and news if they know where it comes from. Well, if you want to experience something that comes from God, If you want a taste of what God does all day go ahead and love somebody this afternoon which implies lack of love comes from where not God as if that wasn't enough motivation to love God gives us John gives us and God gives us a second reason to love in verse 7 Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves? Are you sure, John? Even devil worshipers love their mamas. Everybody loves somebody. Whoever loves has been born of God. Is this proof everyone will end up in heaven and all religions worship the same God? If you've been following along in our sermon series through 1 John, or have any familiarity with the book, you've quickly learned John likes to make unqualified statements like this, which taken out of context, seem to contradict most of the Bible. But in context, John eventually clarifies himself within his letter. So to make sense of a statement like, whoever loves has been born of God, just gotta keep reading. Which leads us to our next question. What does God's love look like? We observed first why love is a good test, but second, what distinguishes God's love from merely human love? Merely human love does originate in God. All are born with the ability to love because they're made in the image of a God who is love. But merely human love does its own thing. It doesn't submit to God's will for what he intends love to look like. John tells us what God's love looks like in verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live Through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? I think I needed the word propitiation defined for me a hundred times before I could remember what it meant. But if in love, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Based on the context, what do you think propitiation means? One Bible translation interprets the word for propitiation as sacrifice. Others say atoning sacrifice. So why would some translations keep propitiation in there when no normal person knows what that means? Our translators snobby scholars who stick five-syllable words in our Bibles so we have to buy their Bible dictionaries to define the words they use or something? Or is this a word translators are willing to fight for because the breadth of its meaning is important? Propitiation is a sacrifice, but as Andy told us recently, it's a sacrifice that turns God's wrath towards sinners into favor. At the heart of propitiation is restored relationship between God and man. What then does God's love look like? It looks like a willingness to die, to unite man, to God. That's my working definition of love for this passage. God's love wants what is best for you. And what is best is God. God, in love, does not see man in his sin and give him a big, fluffy, spiritual hug, comforting him in his sin, all while singing over him, I love you just the way you are. No, God does not love in spite of sin. He does not sweep sin under the rug and love us as if there's not a monster under the rug. God does not love in spite of sin. He loves in light of sin. He knew our sin was a damning problem. We needed a sacrifice as valuable as our sin was offensive. And Jesus loved us in light of our sin by becoming the sacrifice we needed to restore our relationship with God. If you're here today and don't identify as a Christian, I pray this passage clarifies questions you may have about Jesus and even clears up confusion you may have because of false versions of Christianity you've been sold. In this is love, that God sent his only son to die for sin, that he might raise him up in victory over sin, so that all who trust in Jesus as their Savior might enjoy the God who is love forever. What Jesus achieved paved the way for you to come to God now. He doesn't want you to wait until you clean your life up. Come to him now, because on the cross, Jesus took care of the cleanup. So we've established number one, how we know who's a Christian by God's love in them. We've established, number two, what God's love looks like, a willingness to die, to unite man to God. But I'm sure you're already asking our third question. What does God's love look like in someone? Are there signs that God's love is actually in me and not merely human love? There are. there are actually signs. John's been talking about the whole letter. And he repeats himself in our passage. But don't let the review make you turn it, tune out. John repeats himself for a purpose. Kids, when your parents put their arm around you and comfort you about something that makes you upset, maybe someone was mean to you, like a first century false prophet. Do you feel confident like a superhero the first time your parents talk to you? Or might they comfort you a few more times before you begin to feel better? That's what's happening in our passage. So receive John's repetitive counsel once again because when we're confused, we need consoled more than once. In verse 13, John gives us this sign that God's love is in someone. Godly love always comes paired with godly confession. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Why have John and his readers come to know and to believe the love that God has for them? Here's John's first qualification to the statement, whoever loves has been born of God. He's only talking about people who confess Jesus as the Son of God. If God's love is truly in me, I pledge allegiance to God's Son. For John's second and third sign, we're going to need to jump around in the passage a bit to the unstructured nature of John's writing. So bear with me. Sign number two, God's love is in me, comes in chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. John doesn't mean perfectly. Earlier in the letter, he even says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He also says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So John's not talking about perfect commandment keeping here, but a pattern of commandment keeping. So thus far, godly love always comes paired with godly confession and godly obedience. Which makes sense, given John's picture of love. If in love Christ died to reconcile you to God, what person born of God, who God abides in, would not obey Jesus or confess him as the Son of God? That makes absolutely no sense. John's third and final and most difficult sign comes back up in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you need a good rebuke this morning, I pray the Holy Spirit does that work in your heart. But by God's grace, I think I'm preaching to the choir here. My favorite part of this church is you, the people. My wife and I have been amazed time and time again of God's love for us through this family. So once again, I thank you. But because of that strength, I suspect we might be tempted to think, ooh, I know who needs to hear these verses. Even if, by God's grace, our love game has been strong recently, let us still heed these words as a warning in an age when it's becoming increasingly easy to say with a clear conscience, I love Jesus but not the church. A few bad exchanges with church members. A few points of disagreement in sermons. A few unmet expectations about anything. And the memories of our love for one another can vanish behind a dark cloud of bitterness until our love for God becomes imagination. If our love for God is not made visible in love for all God's people, it's imaginary. If God's love is truly in me, I love all Christians because the God in me loves all Christians. Why do you think John brings up sight, contrasting God who you cannot see with the people you can see? Because if you say you love God, but you can't actually see Him, how do you know you're loving Him and not an imaginary friend you've made up in your head. You only know if you love God's visible children. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But do you think dying on the cross was easy? Sometimes love is going to feel like death. So what hope do we have? How are we supposed to know what God's love should look like in the nitty-gritty, the real-life complicated situations that take so much wisdom? How are we ever going to get enough wisdom to love sinners in the complicated situations? To start by sitting at the feet of love-made flesh, Wisdom made flesh. Jesus. For 33 straight years on earth, Jesus loved God and man perfectly, non stop. If you want to know how to love like God, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over again. Memorize them, take notes see Jesus in the Gospels, show gentleness, flip tables, heal some, and rebuke others all in love. What God's love in someone looks like is Jesus. But the more you study Jesus, the more you'll realize just studying Jesus isn't enough. Otherwise, all the most loving people would be academics. The Pharisees would have been loving. No, we need to go another step because Scripture does not provide cut-and-paste solutions to our problems. What does Jesus model when he's about to love in the most painful way imaginable? As the cross awaited him, even the Son of God fell on the ground and cried out to his Father. If Jesus went to prayer when love meant death, how much more should we mere mortals? And if love comes from God, where else would we go for an extra dose? And let us go to, love, to go to God in faith knowing that the God who is in believers is the God who is love. The God in believers is the God who got up on that cross, who took the nails, who listened to the mocking crowd, and still loved. If you think love is hard, be encouraged. Because Jesus thought love was so hard, in the garden, he sweat; his sweat became like great drops of blood. If you didn't think love was hard, that'd be a sign you're not loving like God. Finally, having established what God's love looks like in someone. Jesus, when should we be assured of our own salvation? The standard of love we're called to is so high, so much higher than we're capable of. It can leave us questioning our salvation. But that's not God's intention behind this passage. If the same Spirit who placed the confession of Christ upon your lips has poured the love of God into your heart, John wants you assured of your salvation. Look back up with me at verse 17. By this, by abiding in love, is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Every time I'd heard the phrase, perfect love casts out fear, I always thought it meant God's perfect love of me Casts out my fear of stuff. But is that what John means when he says perfect love casts out fear? It's plainly obvious what specific fear perfect love casts out when you look at the verse right before it. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, it's fear of God's judgment that perfect love casts out. But perfect love from where? From God's perfect love for you, yes, very much so. But is there more to it? Verse 17 says, By this is love perfected with us, Earlier we read in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I haven't met that Christian yet. If John's means we love perfectly. So what is he talking about with all this perfection language? And how is this? Supposed to make me assured of my salvation. John clearly isn't saying we love perfectly, but that our love resembles the perfect one. So, yes, God's perfect love for you casts out fear of judgment, but also, God's perfect love abiding in you casts out fear of judgment. When you experience a love for God and others that isn't from you, a love that can only be from God, you have confidence for the day of judgment. I'm not deceived. I'm not a fake. I'm confident. I'm not going to hear God tell me, I never knew you because I couldn't love like this without having first known God's love for me. Isn't that amazing that God doesn't hide if we're saved? Keeping the names written in the book of life behind lock and key, in some side, inside some dark, far off heavenly castle leaving you petrified about the eternal future of your soul more and more as you get nearer and nearer to the day of your death. And on Judgment Day, we're just left tiptoeing up to the door of God's throne room, blind to what awaits us. And God may grant us eternal life or deliver us to everlasting punishment. No, beloved. God actually wants you to know where you stand with Him today. And if you've been born again in Christ, God wants you to be confident of His favor towards you. He wants you to be able to say, I have come to know and to believe the love that God has for me. He wants you to be able to die And on the other side, say, Father, I'm home. Your adopted child is home as you sprint to his throne without a doubt in your mind that Jesus' embrace awaits you. I think we've lost the wonder in that, in a nation that affirms people's faith so quickly. So irresponsibly, we're taught that if we just pray the prayer, we're definitely saved. And so we all feel this cheap assurance that's alien to the Bible. And as a consequence, we miss out on the wonder of the Father's heart to assure His children, not through a moment. We made a decision in the past but through a relationship we actively participate in and promises we actively trust in today so beloved when you see god's love in a fellow church member when you see them choosing to love when it's hard when you see them loving For only one reason, to honor their Savior. Be Christ's mouthpiece to that brother or sister and tell them, I see God's love in you. He's at work in you. Beloved, that love isn't from you, it's from God Himself. That He's abiding in you is clear. And when you see him face to face, I'm confident that you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's be a church who loves one another enough to tell someone that. And on the other hand, when we see a fellow church member not loving so well or confessing so well, or obeying so well. Let's love them like God. Not in spite of sin, but in light of sin. Not sweeping the sin under the rug, but gently removing the specks from one another's eyes. Knowing that we're desperate for the same kind of help. The local church is part of the help God offers us when love feels like death. Because only in the church can you find wise counsel about how to love like God. Let us love all people everywhere by sharing God's concern for all people everywhere. That when they meet Christ Jesus on Judgment Day, they would be able to approach his throne with confidence Trembling with joy, awaiting to hear the words, Well done. The proof God's in you is that his love's in you. God has given us this passage for when we're confused, when we doubt, so that those in Christ may be confident that judgment day will be the happiest of their lives. With this passage, God aims to protect us for that day from the fakes who are trying to confuse us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us as love and not leaving us in the dark as to our future with you please now give us the strength to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of you. Help us by your spirit to love others in a way that makes your love known. We need your wisdom. We need Jesus. And we're just as confident that Christ's spirit will help us as we are that will be with you forever. Please, may our friends, family, and neighbors know we are Jesus' disciples by our love for one another. And may they, too, come to know and to believe the love that you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen.